0: The Black Palestinian Solidarity Forum at Jagera Hall last night threw up a number of questions. One of these was, how do we give solidarity to people who are in struggle or are part of a resistance? The two groups I'm thinking of is the First Nations people in Australia and the Palestinians. I think one of the main messages that came from the Solidarity Night and from all the speakers involved was that giving solidarity does not mean giving advice or telling people how to conduct their struggle. For example, the Australian government has for many years it's been telling the Palestinian people that the only solution available to them is the two-state solution which it proposed in the United Nations as long ago as 1948 the leader of the Labour Party and uh, the foreign minister at the time, Doc Ebbett, helped set up the two-state solution. This cannot work. Who are we to tell Palestinians engaged in a deadly struggle with an occupation army how they are to go about resisting that occupation? It doesn't make any sense and it can't work. Our role is to provide them with support. Another example is that an a number of years ago, Palestinian civil society asked solidarity groups around the world to conduct a boycott, divestments and sanctions campaign against Israel, even though that's hard to do in places like Australia, where, for example, there aren't many Israeli goods being uh, bought and sold here. In, in supermarkets, You just on the shelves, it's very rare that you find uh, Israeli goods. So a boycott of those goods is not really that easy to conduct. But nonetheless, um, the Justice for Palestine, Mianjin, in Brisbane, it did conduct successful campaigns in supermarkets against some Israeli products. The second lesson that came from last night was from Ramzi Baroud, and that was that the Palestinians are seeking alliances in the global north and in the west to influence these countries to adopt their case and they they want the australian government to impose sanctions against apartheid israel they want people in the global north governments like france and poland germany to do the same but currently it's illegal in germany for you to conduct a campaign against israel because of what happened during the holocaust the german government has said that that is anti-Semitic. To conduct a campaign in favour of the Palestinian people and their desires for freedom and, and democratic rights cannot be anti-Semitic. At a local level, the Aboriginal Protection Boards have been replaced by the criminal justice system because uh, it is locking up Aboriginal children. The Palaszczuk state government is, a, is determined to lock up more kids. So are other agencies like the Department of Children's Services. They take children away from Aboriginal families. So we shouldn't be trying to tell Aboriginal people how to conduct their struggle against these departments. It's up to them to decide how to go about winning that struggle. I'll leave it at that and we can go now to the um, podcast about the Palestinian Solidarity Forum and you can have a listen for yourselves. This is 4PR Voice of the People. Ian Kerr signing off for now. This is a podcast from 4PR Voice of the People from the Black Palestine Solidarity Night that was held at the Jaguar Hall on Thursday the 9th of March. The guests were Chelsea Wattago, Ramsey Baroud, Amy McQuire, and Jamal Nablusi. It was a packed and there was a lot of discussion afterwards. So let's go now to the MC for the night, Jamal Nablusi, as he introduces some of the guests.
1: I'll start by introducing our um, our stellar panel here. We've got uh, Professor Chelsea Watergo. Um Chelsea Watergo is a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman with over 20 years of experience working within Indigenous health as a health worker and researcher. Uh, she's Professor of Indigenous Health at QUT's School of Public Health and Social Work, uh, as well as the Executive Director of the Kurumba Institute at QUT. Uh, she's a Director at the Institute for Collaborative Race Research and a founding board member uh, of Anala Wangara. Her debut book, uh, Another Day in the Colony, um, released in November 2021, was met with critical acclaim. And then uh, next to Chelsea, we've got uh, Amy McQuire. Amy Amy is a Durham Bull and South Sea Islander writer with 17 years experience working as a journalist across Indigenous and independent media. Uh, She's an Indigenous postdoctoral fellow at the School of Communication at QUT. Her first children's book, Daybreak, was published in 2022 and her first non-fiction book, Black Witness, uh, will be published this year. Um, and we're all very excited for that one. And uh, last but not least, uh, we have uh, Dr. Ramsey Baroud joining us tonight. Um, and uh, Ramzi Baroud is a U.S. Palestinian journalist, media consultant, author, internationally syndicated columnist, and editor of the Palestine Chronicle. Uh, he's the author of six books, and a contributor to many others. His latest volume co-edited with Ilan Pape, is Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak-Out. So I, w- I want to start just by basically asking um, each of you uh, just sort of why, like what brings you here tonight, what brings you to stand in solidarity um, specifically with Palestinians or First Nations peoples as the case is um, for each of you. I want to ask you, Amy, um, first because I know you've been doing a lot of solidarity work with Palestinians for a long time now um, and I think quietly have uh, become a real leader on this front uh, not just here but across the country so I guess I'm wondering what sort of initially sparked this solidarity Um, was there a particular moment or was it something that built more slowly or um... um
2: I think it definitely built slowly but it really came through just knowing Palestinians and seeing not just um, the violence, the overt violence. I mean, I don't think it's even hidden anymore. Um, But seeing the just strong resistance to it from Palestinians and just seeing the um, similarities over here. um, Yeah, I think it just grew through that and just through connections and everything like that. Um, And just seeing us as both um, indigenous peoples under settler colonial societies seeing the links, but particularly seeing the silencing tactics, because I think that still happens over here in different ways. Um, but I previously used to work for um, or write for publications that were complicit in the silencing of Palestinian voices, particularly Morris um, Schwartz Media. So the Monthly, the Saturday Paper, all these other things, not really realising um, just the breadth of the censorship, you know what I mean? And just how you couldn't even speak about it. Um, so it was very important for that advocacy to come to light, to be able to see the violence in the same way that we're seeing the violence and being able to talk about the violence in our own country. Um, and I just didn't feel as an Aboriginal person, I could be complicit in that silencing, writing for those sort of publications. Um, and it's very hard for Palestinian people over here to get a voice in the media. You will not see it at all. And it's the same way that they silence Aboriginal voices. There's a very limited way that you can speak on certain issues. Um, And if you step out of those confines, um, you face consequences. And there are similarities in the way Aboriginal voices as black witnesses are are treated in the same way Palestinian voices are silenced and treated. Um, So I think it was sort of a gradual thing, but really through seeing um, the shared resistances to that violence.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll turn to Rumsey now um, to to ask you because um, when when um, when you were approached uh, to so you were you were in the country uh, primarily for the Adelaide uh, Writers Festival um, and um, when you were approached to do some uh, speaking events in some other cities uh, you mentioned that um, you were specific, you were particularly interested in engaging with um, with Indigenous writers and activists. Um, so I, I guess I want to ask um, uh, like what uh, makes that uh, engagement with um, indigenous people so important to you
3: right uh, thank you very much for for this and for the opportunity to speak to you today and 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 you know for all the work that you guys do I mean you are the the real soldiers on the ground you are the ones who are fighting this battle on a daily basis we just we just come and go, but at the end of the day, without you, there is no uh, front lines to be uh, fought, and there's no battles to be won, so thank you for that. Um, if I may just take us back a little bit, and, and do stop me, I, I, I tend not to stop on my own, so just raise your hands and say, shut up, Ramzi, and stop. Um, if you look back at the history of the Palestinian struggle, and I'm talking about uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way till the mid-80s. That's when the PLO was uh, left Lebanon after the Israeli invasion. And that's how the Palestinian resistance, in a way, became one big company with funds and millionaires and that sort of thing. And that, that, that initial act of corruption that happened to our revolution, with time, translated to Oslo. We keep talking about Oslo and the Oslo peace process, and it was a bad deal for Palestinians, but we tend not to talk about the history that led us to that particular moment. But something else happened during that time, and that is language, and language particularly around the area of solidarity. If you look back at the definition that Zionism is a racist movement, That definition, which was adopted by the United Nations, I think in 1975, and was eventually rejected by the United Nations under American pressures after Oslo, I think in 1991, that definition actually did not start by Palestinians themselves, it wasn't uh, pushed by the Arabs themselves, it was by the Africans. The African countries gathered together a few months before that resolution passed at the United Nations, and they declared that the racist apartheid regime in South Africa uh, and and other African polities is very similar to the racist Zionist regime in Palestine. And therefore, we reject this kind of uh, uh, racism and apartheid. A few months later, the United Nations reworked that language and the general assembly adopted that very definition. The point I'm trying to make here is that solidarity with Palestine has historically been situated within the Global South, within indigenous movements. It wasn't opportunistic. It, was, it didn't involve money and geopolitics and power paradigms. It was genuine. It was in, in, uh, 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 innate. It was grassroots. Oslo changed our political thinking entirely. We were told that the only way that Palestine can ever be free is if Washington would allow it. And that's where our, our um, uh, campus began shifting. Uh, if you notice, the cities that were affiliated with the so-called peace process, from Madrid to Paris to London to Camp David to Washington, it was no longer... Conferences of solidarity that happening in in Lagos and Brazilia and Pretoria. It was no longer something that is relatable to us from a historical point of view. At the end of the day, we lost everything. Not only we did not win any independence and also made things a lot worse but that strategic depth that we had in the global south was basically being lost, and we were not paying any attention to it. Thanks to BDS, thanks to grassroots movements, thanks to engaged academics and intellectuals and activists, we are going back there. And here's the thing that, and and I'm sorry if I am elaborating too much here, because I'm I'm really trying to give the word solidarity actual political meaning, right? What I notice, that whenever I speak, and I've spoken in over 50 countries so far, Whenever I speak in the North, my language is, first of all, my position as a Palestinian, I become accused somehow. I have to explain myself. I have to justify myself. I have to talk about suicide bombings, and about Hamas, and about factionalism, and so forth and so on. I never experienced that in the global South. And that gives me a lot of hope that when I went to Nairobi and when I went to South Africa and when I went to uh, Chile, when I went to um, other countries in Asia, the, the conversation is not ramzi explain yourself. Ramzi, why are your people doing this? Do you you know Israel doesn't have a peace partner you guys don't. No, that's not the conversation. We build back into that historical trajectory and we continue the conversation as if this destruction of 30 years of Oslo never happened. And I think this is, should always be the main focus in order for solidarity to become truly meaningful.
1: Um, So yeah, I wanna ask you Chelsea, basically the same question. Um, Like what brings you to stand in solidarity with Palestinians specifically? Um, Or also feel free to, you know, riff on anything that um, resonated from what Ramzi said.
4: Sure, thank you. Um, Thank you, for, um, situating us here. Um, look, for me, I I, I feel um, I'm, you know I'm relatively new on my journey, and I feel anyone number anyone else could possibly be sitting in the seat for this conversation. So I feel a bit um, thing about that. Um, what brings me to this conversation is, I guess, um, as a black girl, trying to make sense of the violent machinery of settler colonialism, and it's through conversations uh, with Palestinian uh, people and scholars that I. Uh, Found a shared understanding, to make sense of, of, of what we deal with, what we uh, live, we try to live within, um, and you know um, the hopelessness of the situation. And I'm you know not a fan of hope necessarily, but what I find in these places is uh, a larger home from which we can collectively strategize uh, in. Um, and share the learnings um, in a way that better preserves the bodies of those who are subjected to the violence of settler colonialism going forward. And so, selfishly, I mean, this conversation to learn and to, to better strategize. But I'm interested in solidarity um, uh, in terms of the reciprocal nature of solidarity and what does that mean in a settler colonial state, and whatever position we we hold. And you know. Um, as blackfellas here, we've seen um, the lack of solidarity um, in this place from settlers. From um, but it's also, you know, thinking about us uh, as blackfellas and our obligation to be in solidarity with others that are experiencing violence that we know too. And so I'm interested in solidarity as something that how it's reciprocal, what's our obligation, as well as how we hold people accountable to their kind of solidarity at the same time. Um, Uh, And so, yeah, I found, um, you know, uh, coming to race and thinking about race and indigeneity um, as a limitation of of sort of critical race theory in other places. And um, I just think some of the conversations we get to have in terms of dealing with the violence of settler colonialism, it gives me a place to think in and with in the absence of literature that we normally lean to that doesn't speak to this unique experience that we share. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge, is people claim solidarity, but when it comes to it, will they pay the costs for that? Um, and true solidarity is that willingness to um, to be there when it matters, and that's where we find people falling short on, on solidarity, um, uh, who, who, who say the right things, and um, but when it comes to it, when we've been betrayed, um, yeah, still seek proximity to settlers here and to whiteness and I'm um, not prepared to be disliked and hated mm. um, in the way in which we know what that feels like. Um, and so, um, yeah, I struggle with the flimsiness of solidarity at times. Um, and But also I have to hold myself accountable to that as well. So if I stand for that, well then, um, yeah, when, when that backlash comes, we're standing in that um, and not shying away from that, and I think that's that's a practice, and an ethics of solidarity that I think we need to be speaking about and being honest about it, like and owning it, um, because it is an ongoing practice that we we need to be talking about and reflecting on and and holding ourselves as accountable to that as we do to others that we what we accept from them.
1: And I think these ideas really resonate as well with. Um... Uh, the notion that you mentioned um, yesterday, Ramzi, of a functional solidarity.
3: Solidarity means, um, it, it, it's kind of this open, open term that can be defined um, in different ways by different people. Um, solidarity could potentially mean that when you go to a grocery store and you see, find an Israeli product, you make a conscious decision not to buy it because you want to boycott Israeli products, which is good. I mean, that makes you a political agent, in a sense. There's an element of initiative, and that's important. But also, solidarity means what uh, uh, Dr. Max Gilbert, for example, the famous Norwegian doctor who goes to Gaza during times of war, and, and he gets actively involved in saving lives, and so many of them. That's solidarity, too. Uh, there's solidarity in, in in language that kind of persists within academic and intellectual spaces, and doesn't really translate to anything meaningful on the ground. We're not very good at this, I think. I think we kind of, in a sense, we 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 resolve issues within small spaces, but we constantly fail in translating it to something meaningful outside. And and how do we do that? Um, My latest book with Ilan Pape is um, our vision for liberation Engaged Palestinian leaders and intellectuals engaged and that's really for me is the key word the term engaged intellectual like organic intellectual These are Gramscian terms. That's Antonio Gramsci the uh, uh, anti-fascist You know scholar who pretty much perished and died in a fascist prison all these years ago, what he argued that that anyone, any person is capable of playing the role of the intellectual in any space. You don't have to be a professional intellectual. You don't have to have an academic degree, and you don't have to be perceived as such by society. But you are still capable of being an intellectual if you position yourself as such. So anyone is capable of being an intellectual, but the most important and relevant intellectual is the engaged intellectual. That person who navigates his space between various groups, what Edward Said described as, as the you know the insider and the outsider. You know, uh, and, and, and this is the kind of intellectual that we need, and that's the kind of intellectual that is capable of translating such terms as solidarity. To something meaningful and and you know to go back to the original question why are you are we here well we are here because we need to explore that concept we you know enough for you know this you know good you know uh, uh, feel good moments of feeling that you know we all sorted this out yes solidarity brothers and then we end up bleeding. but what does it mean for for our brothers and sisters who sleep in the street uh what does it uh, mean for for Palestinians in Hebron who had their town burned uh, by the settlers. What does it mean for our brothers and sisters in America uh, who are being shot point blank, mainly for being black? What does it actually mean in that regard? And if we can't figure out the answer, then our solidarity is just empty rhetoric. And if we know how to figure it out, and it's not an easy issue to figure out, because settler colonial societies, the powers that control these societies, do everything in their power to to destroy and to dismantle our attempt at, at uh, uh, displaying any kind of resistance. They try to break us in every possible way. So this is not an easy process. Even if we all agree that we are going to Translate our solidarity to something meaningful, in whichever platform we operate in, as intellectuals in society, or as engaged intellectuals, it could not mean anything because we are fighting against powerful forces. And I, I shared that story with you uh, earlier, uh, Jamal, you yeah, said, yeah. share yeah. that with the audience. So, and it just it happened that we were having uh, uh, Greek coffee earlier today, and. And I was trying to explain the concept of functional solidarity. Um, intersectionality more or less is the same concept, but I try to tr- translate these kind of things, break the academic hold on language, so we can all relate to, to it. Um, I grew up in a refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. Yeah? My family was like every other family. We were all poor. There were, there were no classes in our society. We had no rich... People in the refugee camp, are all refugees are all poor. Um, at times we did not get money to buy food from school, we didn't have lunch, you don't, don't have a school lunch. You know, you just go and you just, you know, uh, because it's just not, it When we were six brothers, and if everybody is getting some money for lunch, my father would go broke, so we had to allocate the, our money so very carefully, but once in a while, I would be given a very small amount of money, like very small. Enough, maybe, for for a piece of candy, or something of that nature. And I came up with this idea with a group of friends of mine at school. We were, I think, in the third grade, right? And the idea was this. Everybody seems to have a small amount of money. By itself, it did not serve any purpose. But if each one of us invests that money in buying a single item, I bought the falafel, others bought the bread, others bought the pickles and the olives, others bought the tea. Suddenly, we're all sitting on a newspaper in the schoolyard, and we're having this fancy picnic. And other kids would walk around, and they would kind of give us dirty looks like we were the rich kids. We were as poor as everybody else. We just decided to invest our money in such a way that we can actually all eat. Individually, we couldn't eat. Together, we could eat. That is intersectionality. It's just the idea That you offer certain expertise and you have certain influence and certain power in your community, I have the same thing in mind. If you operate against the state machinery on your own, you will be crushed. If I operate against it, I will be crushed. But if we unify our ranks and operate against it all together, we will eventually prevail. Absolutely,
4: and I just I think. When um, we think about solidarity in terms of traditional academic work, um, and I guess the thing that, I guess, shoots me the most is the idea that solidarity is having the most sophisticated take on someone else's struggle and becoming the knower of it. Um, and that's not uh, what, what that is, but sadly that is what happens um, in this place. And, um, you know, it was Saeed that gave me the ability to see a freedom in being the exiled academic, the marginalised scholar. Um, and the, the joy, the beauty, the freedom that comes with doing things on your own terms. But finding community um, to do that with. Um, hence ICRR and, and the community that we're, we're building is um, to, to find new ways um, to do the work. And, and there is important intellectual work to be done, and it's not the domain of academics within, within universities, it's everybody, like we're all theorising about this place. Um, and to open up that space for us to collectively um, strategize, and um, you know, and I think just even um, there's only so much that the scholar can do, you know. There are limitations to that, and I just think about like um, for the role of the journalist, and I think the work that to do with Amy and the different how we work together, but in different ways to uh, influence and shape thinking and take people, uh, bring people in, um, and make the understanding of this 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 structure that we're fighting against. It has to be accessible to the people who are experiencing the struggle. What's the point of it, um, if we don't, so, yeah.
2: I mean, I was just even reflecting on it, reading your work in the Palestinian Chronicle, because my thing is how we build up some sort of insurgent media, or some sort of indigenous media, or some sort of sovereign media. And so when I was reading your work, you're directly speaking back to violence that you're not supposed to name, that you're supposed to take as normalised, you know, when you're doing journalism, you're supposed to be objective. Like, the, there's all these core journalistic principles and news values that um, ultimately work against what you were trying to do. There are certain values based on certain people's lives that place people above... Uh, bodies above others. And so we have to think of new ways of doing journalism that breaks through that. And so when I was reading some of your articles, that's what I saw, you know what I mean? And so I think it's... Um, what we can learn from other people as well in building our own sovereign media to speak back to violence that is so often concealed um yeah i think we can take that from so many different places you know not just the academy journalism art so many other different um so many other different arenas
1: yeah absolutely um and i mean you're all sort of in in different ways so actively involved in in the media um, and um, and yeah, as you were talking about, Amy, um, you know, uh, like Palestinians and First Nations here are um, so um, you know misrepresented, um, vilified in mainstream media, um, ultimately to justify violence against these two communities and uh, to ultimately steal their land. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, and you, you very much touched on this as well, Amy, uh, already. Um, but wondering if we can dig um, further into um, basically what role solidarity can play um, in the fight, in this fight, in this fight that you're talking about, Amy, um, against these um, misrepresentations.
2: Um, I remember a few years ago now when Eurovision was in Tel Aviv, and our um our representative for that year was Jessica Malbo. <laughs> and so we felt very strongly about her going over to perform at Eurovision, which obviously is a case of you know propaganda and whitewashing. So we wrote, we decided to write an open letter. Um, it was co-authored by three Aboriginal writers, um, three Palestinian Australian writers, and three Jewish Australian writers. So we went to great lengths to try and get this letter published strategically to have all those people represented. But of course, we couldn't get it published. We ended up getting it published in New Matilda. Um, but the letter wasn't even calling out Jessica Malboy. It was an attempt to show um, what her presence at Eurovision meant in the wider scheme of things. But I think there are just so few avenues to contest a lot of the language that Ramsey talks about. And you only really can do it in independent media or black media. There is no other way. And we've seen that. Um, In Fairfax, we've seen that in News Limited just over the past few weeks. Um, We see that continually with um, Black Ink, with the monthly, with the Saturday paper. Um, And so we have to circumvent that. But that's something that blackfellas have been doing for a very long time over here. um, Because the media is complicit in the violence that is being continually perpetrated on blackfellas over here. And we see that continually. And you sit in the inquest, you sit in the court, Um, You sit in community, and you see all of this language used to obscure the sheer brutality of what is happening to Aboriginal people. Um, And Chelsea will talk about it as well. The core um, aspiration of the settler colony is to eliminate black presence from black lands. And that's what's happening over in Palestine as well, eliminating Indigenous presence, disappearing them into jails. Gaza is the largest um, open-air prison in the world, starving them of resources. There are so many ways, and you're not supposed to speak to back to that violence, and the media isn't complicit in concealing that violence. And so our work over here has been actively finding ways to contest it for our media to be used fundamentally as a tool for our communities, as a weapon for our communities. It's not objective, it's not there to promote your career, it's fundamentally to be used for those on the front line, and that's a totally different aspiration from the majority of the mainstream media today.
4: Um, Yeah, so I think that can I ask a question? Because I wanted to have this yarn yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the challenges in terms of, I'm just, for both of you, I think, in terms of making visible the violence, and I'm reminded of Fiona Foley's work as an artist who talks about the challenge of uh, representing violence without reproducing it. And I'm just curious about how you both navigate, you know, making visible the violence and the ethics around around how you navigate that decision-making because I I think you know our context here uh, you know you want to make visible um, the violence and you know we see families who have to go through the courts to get CCTV footage released of the death of their loved ones in custody Um, and then as a political strategy the effectiveness of that in showing our wounds what change does that does it does that affect change or what's the function of it um, and what does it do to ourselves in, in that. So I'm just really curious about how you navigate representing violence and bringing attention to the violence. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. So many important issues have been raised and I'm, I'm going to try to so very quickly touch on that. But I'm going to just start with, with this issue because as I, have, um, I I served as a full-time journalist when I was 16 years old uh, in, in in Gaza, in, a, in, the, in the camp. and. My job was to chase after ambulances uh, where shot, Palestinians were shot and killed and tried to give their names and get quotes from their you know, bereaved families in the hospital. It wasn't the best job in the world and certainly the least comfortable for a 16-year-old child uh, having to do it. And, and since then, I haven't stopped. I mean, I kind of deal with it in a different way, different platforms, different representations, but essentially, it's the same thing. We are still, you know, talking about the um, the six who were killed in Jenin yesterday, and the eleven who were killed in Nablus last week, and those who killed in Shafat before that, and so forth. So, uh, the, the basic element of the discussion is still people being killed, and it's quite worrying because because at the end of the day, when that becomes us, when death becomes us. When destruction becomes us, with burning and, and ethnic cleansing, of, you know, and you know, uh, and, and expropriation of land and, and all of that becomes us. You start wondering sometimes, like, do you lose sight of who you actually are? It's like you kind of allow your enemy to define you, even though you are fighting against that very definition. But you start internalizing it over time as well. Um, and as a journalist, I have, I've. Try to challenge that by, uh, like, if you go to the Palestine Chronicle, you're going to find news about the 11 killed, and the sixth and the seventh and the 3, and the 4, and the 5. But you will also, if you go to the Palestine Chronicle today, you're going to talk about the achievements of Palestinian women on International Women's Day. You are going to see human developments. You are going to see children doing karate in Gaza. You're going to see a Palestinian doctor who won an award and so forth and so on. So, you know, our societies, believe it or not, actually do exist between Israeli wars. We don't just drop everything and just wait for Israel to come back and kill some more. We do exist. In fact, we thrive in many ways. I mean, the artistic movement in Palestine is is absolutely powerful. Our films win international awards. Our books, our authors, our poets, our rap artists, and I know this is your area of research, uh, Jamal, we do exist and we have to celebrate that. Not as a way of deflecting or like, oh, forget about, let's talk about happy things for change. No. Because they are both connected. They try to deprive us of life and land and freedom, and we insist on our right to live in, on our land in freedom. And it's just that, that, that push and pull, it's what, what defines our society, what makes us strong. Palestinian women, I mean, since we are talking about the International Women's Day, 19.6%, I think I'm correct with this, 19.6% of all Palestinian adult women have university degrees and higher. This is happening within the framework of colon- colonialism and, and, and military occupation. Imagine if we didn't have these restrictions imposed. And by the way, that is like one of the highest percentage in the entire MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. Um, that is something worth celebrating. That is something that is, is the alienates the, the power of, the, of our communities as collectives to fight back. Fighting back is not about firing rockets. Fighting back is not someone with a knife or a dagger or a gun. Fighting back is that everyday resilience, insistence on education. We always complain about the Israeli checkpoints you know, preventing kids from reaching their schools, preventing people from going to work but we don't talk about the fact, still, despite the fact that this happens every single day you still have tens of thousands of people who stand on these checkpoints insisting that they want to go to school, they want to harvest their olives, they want to to live their lives that insistence is, is, we are making their life very difficult as well, they are making our lives very difficult but we refuse to go away. We refuse to go away, and not just we exist, you know, existence is resistance. Yeah, but for Palestinians, it's not just existence. It is existence in a whole different way. Exist, like, just really one last quick story. When I went to Gaza a few years ago, I kind of internalized this whole, oh, poor Palestinians, the war, and all of this. and So I go with this deep sadness. It's been many years since I went to Gaza, and I, I you know, the news that we are living this tragedy from far away without being part of the community, the everyday community. So I go and I'm sitting in a in a in an internet cafe somewhere in the Rimal neighborhood in Gaza City, and then I look at all the um, and at all the posters. There's all the you know the, the posters in the streets, you know, pictures of entire families and I assume that there are all these are the people who were killed in the last war and those people killed in the previous war, but then I start kind of looking closer, and I start realizing no, some of them were killed in previous wars, but some of them are new graduates. Families congratulating other families for you know Mabruk, you know a thousand congratulations for the graduation of your son from university, or or picture of couples who just got married and. and and people who went to do pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia and they came back. And, and then I looked at this music, this mix of tragedy and hope at the exact same time. Pictures of families that died and pictures of newborns on top of one another. And I'm just trying to make sense out of it. I was born in Gaza, but sometimes these things escape you. That's the secret of continuity of Palestinian society. And then I hear this big racket coming from somewhere loud loud music and then there's this massive caravan of cars people going to a wedding hall from a refugee camp to a different refugee camp we're talking about months after one of the most destructive wars right and they wouldn't wait until they got to the wedding hall to celebrate they were all on top of the trucks even the, the the music band was in the back of this big truck all playing their music and people dancing in the streets and and I was like, yeah, that's what I, now this is the Gaza I remember, it's, it is that mix, they come and they blow things up and white phosphorus and children and people get buried and, and then the following day, we go back to our mosques and churches and we pray, we go to our markets and we bargain, we go to our schools and we celebrate and we carry on with our plans as if nothing has happened we refuse to internalize and be defined by our victimhood and by their wars and that's i think is the secret of our society and that's why we keep going 75 years into this ongoing genocide and yet we refuse to be defeated or to surrender under any circumstance.
0: Either of
1: you want to pick up on any any threads from uh, from that, or? Well,
4: I'm I just think about your work around presencing an indigenous woman, and I think you can speak. I'm curious listening to that. Hey, what your ethics of practice around that? Yeah,
2: and I apologise. I got on a plane in Africa, ago, so it's a bit um. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think that's been one of the big issues in relation to reporting of Aboriginal affairs um, over the past decades you know it's just that um we continually see these images of the brutalization of black bodies of black women women of black children of black men particularly in the justice system but even outside of the justice system um and it fails to when these images come out um they fail to shock australia or if it shocks australia it's only for the next probably a week it, fa- it fails to lead to any conservative action and um i started to look particularly around the deaths and disappearances of Aboriginal women particularly, but the way that they were spoken about that denied them justice in any form, but also in the way that the courts and the media continually reproduced that violence through representational violence, through failing to see them as people, but always seeing them predominantly from the wounds of their bodies, only speaking of them as body parts or wounds and ways that denied them full personhood and ways that failed to continue to deliver justice in the ways that Aboriginal people wanted justice. And that's been continual from the days of the frontier to now, in that we have all of these anonymous tales of Aboriginal people who have been killed or been disappeared, and that there is no justice for any of them. And the media has been so complicit in that continual brutalization. And so I felt that we needed a way to speak back to that violence in ways that continually did not bury the women again. Or repeat, perpetrate those wounds in those same ways. Um, because when we show those images of trauma, it does not do anything except feed this insatiable appetite that white Australia has that's always fed upon the brutalisation of black bodies, because that's the beginning of the colony. And so I felt we needed a different way to speak to this. Um, and I started to look into, particularly, um, an amazing um, Aboriginal Canadian academic called Leanne Bittesamogi Simpson, who speaks of presencing. Um, and speaking back to this violence through acts of presence. Um, hey, that's my phone. And I started to see it as um, not particularly humanization because when media humanises Aboriginal people, it's often to make them closer to what they seem as human, which is always closer to whiteness. So you're always humanised in relation to traits that are most palatable to white people. And that obscures many things. It obscures a lot of levels of violence that Aboriginal women are blamed for when they could be resistant you know you're resisting violence but then you're framed as being violent yourself and so I felt we needed a different way to speak to these stories that continually just didn't see us as bodies that are open for violation but instead of of people who have a right to live free of violence you know I felt like white Australia is not ready to hear those stories and so we must tell those stories not particularly for white Australia, but to be given back to the families, to be given back to communities. And because right now we do have an issue in this country, we have a crisis where Aboriginal women, Aboriginal children and men are being funneled into really violent systems that are electorally popular, which we see in Queensland, particularly around the Aboriginal children and the targeting of Aboriginal children, the opening up of new child jails. And that is something that is sustaining the state of Queensland, these harsh law and order policies, and it is sustained by a lot of these images that you see of these violent Aboriginal children. They're just children. You know what I mean? And so I felt we really needed... The media had such a huge responsibility, but the more I looked at the media, I felt like they were never going to be up to that task. At all, the mainstream media, and then as I said, "Look at you know, it's always been the mainstream media in this country has always been a tool of imperialism. It's always been a tool, tool of colonialism. If you look at, back into the um, archive, even the most aggressive voices were incredibly racist, as we know. And I don't think they should be given any um, excuses because they're of their time. You know, they are working towards what we know now is the invasion of this country and the continual invasion of this country. This is happening in real time in Palestine. And so, speaking back to that." through independent media, through sovereign media, through different forms of media. And I often talk, we're in a time of crisis, climate crisis, and our media has utterly failed everyone. And so why are we still looking to reform the media? Why are we still looking to have a place in the mainstream media? We need to have a place outside of that media to be able to inform our communities to start building these things, to start speaking back to the violence that is so normalized that people take it as a given, You know, you you only have to look at what's happening right now in this state of Queensland, a state of disappearance where they're continually wanting to brutalise the most vulnerable people, and everyone is okay with it. You know what I mean? I feel like the mainstream media as a whole is completely just... It can't be... You can't reform it. You can't get in there and change it. You literally just can't. You're working in this... It's no different from any other colonial apparatus in this country. You know, the police inform the media, the media inform the police. Regardless if you have these stories of the racist and the gendered violence of police and the media, they still go back and use the police as the primary informant. They're still using the politicians as the primary informant. They don't interrogate anything. You know what I mean? And they, they normalise those really horrific logics which you sit and you look at and you think, how on earth could we think that this is okay? You know what I mean?
3: If I mean that that's... many excellent points, but particularly the one about reforming the media, because we Palestinians fell in that trap for a long time. Um, we thought that if we just try a little bit harder um, and use the right language uh, while keeping in mind Western the, the sensibilities of Western audiences, and so forth and so on, eventually we will be given a little bit of space in the media, and with time, we are going to change everything, and that is just foolish, simply. And I think it's just I think it's just part of the the, the, the mental and intellectual colonization that was imposed on us in the process. We call it keep calling uh, keep referring to it in the U.S. And in the West as mainstream media. It's not mainstream media. It's corporate media, and corporate media, by definition, it's a company. This is a company that wants to make profits. Uh, it's not there to raise issues concerning human rights and bring justice to everybody and equality at, uh, for all, of course not. And it would be stupid to think otherwise. So you have these corporate media machines. Um, I'm sure that many of you, it's an academic setting, so I, uh, I think many of you are really familiar with uh, Non Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent. Um, and the idea that the, the way that uh, the media works hand in hand with governments and they... You know, it's, it's all part of the same apparatus. These are not two independent elements. Um, <clears throat> I feel so guilty when I take more time than I than I, than I should, so I keep apologizing. But there's something we call superstructure. Okay? What is superstructure? Every, every economic mode anywhere in the world doesn't just exist on its own. Yeah? It has to come with the kind of language that, that justifies it, that explains it, uh, that defends it. That's a superstructure. So think of what is the what is the biggest industries in this town. Can, can you give me an example? What is the biggest industry here? What is the local economy? Construction. Construction. Excellent. So you have construction. We call this structure or base. Yeah. In order for the construction business to continue thriving, a lot of people would have to be involved in lobbying with the government, in writing positive articles about it in the newspapers, uh, churches, maybe, you know, wink-wink, get a little bit of money, and you do some, a little bit of promotion. Um, everybody is involved in defending that, you know, that economic mode. That's what we call the superstructure, right? The superstructure, then, is the ideas, the politics, even the music. It's all part of the superstructure. Why the American, uh, American government, for example, is constantly promoting mainstream musicians and all? Because they are all pushing their own country's agenda, but at a cultural level, yeah? So, to assume that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, CNN and everybody else, it's just this independent out- these independent outlets that are making moral decisions and professional decisions completely independent of the economic powers that control the United States, the power of the lobbies, the people with the money, it's crazy because it will never happen. And and so for us to just assume that they are gonna change overnight or ever, ever, is just a waste of time. So what we need to do alternatively is alternative media, truly independent media, community media. Now this may seem like okay, so we are going to open a website and talk about indigenous struggles and as part of like an everyday news reality. We're not going to get so many views. But here's the thing: you are building grassroots movements. It's a long process. It's going to take years. When we started the Palestine Chronicle about in 1999, it was it was a pathetic little project that. We used to have few people coming to the website every day then the palestinian intifada happened that was september 2000, uh, 2000 and then suddenly thousands of people are coming in and then whenever there is any breaking news in palestine you have hundreds of people at any given second on the website now it's the leading palestinian news website anywhere in the world and then we added a french website called crony Palestine, and now we are working towards launching an Italian website, Palestinian Chronicle Italia. And we're going to keep going, doing this and this, to the point that at the festival, I was told Ramsey, there is a guy from the New York Times who wants to talk to you. Now, if this happened 15, 20 years ago, I would drop everything and I would go running to talk to him. Any little mention, even positive, one well positive sentence about Palestine would have been worthy. And I actually had a meeting with two indigenous activists who needed to leave the country or the the airport. And I said, I don't want to talk to him. And I went and I spoke with the indigenous activists. The point I'm trying to make here is that our salvation is going to come through our own mediums of communication. And we need to start believing in ourselves, by the way. I know many Palestinian, wealthy Palestinians who, like when, when they think about the work that we do, they think it's ineffectual, it's irrelevant. They would rather pay money and donate to organizations that speak on behalf of the Palestinians. Because you know, white people have more legitimacy. Who's going to listen to us? You see, which is sad. So we need to start believing in ourselves and understanding that, that Palestine will never be free through the editorial pages of the New York Times. It's going to be free through the everyday dedication resilience of the Palestinians in Palestine, but also of people who genuinely and truly support and communicate the Palestinian message worldwide. That's how it goes.
1: Um, did you want to want to add anything to that, Chelsea, um, before I open it up to the, to the floor for questions? Or?
4: Yeah, again, I think it's just from that um, yesterday that um, I think people forget also the violence of the concessions that need to be made and that appeal to have someone speak on, on your behalf and not believing in yourself. And um, uh, the freedom and joy that comes from building on your own terms because you suddenly realise how much labour you're exhausting in an appeal to exist in those spaces, or to find, carve out space in those spaces, and and that you actually don't get time to do the work with your own people because you're constantly in this appeal. Um, and um, I think that's, you know, it took me a while to arrive at that, um, and, and, and just, I guess everything you said about uh, the media is the same for the academy, that why do we believe academic institutions would do any better. Um, they're built on stolen man and profit from that. And so, um, coming to it, um, you know, and I think, you know, being to ICRR, it's a small house, it's just this little house, um, but it is about that uh, building um, in places that are not predicated upon you not existing. And, the, and it may be the hard road and the long road, and it's, you know, it, it keeps you from certain tables where the, we believe power resides, um, but that, that thinking means you forget your own fucking power. Mm-hmm. And we can't forget that. Um, and so th- that's just in that yarn with you, really relate to that. And, and, and um, uh, giving up on the hope that somehow our humanity will be seen and recognised and, 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 and realising and standing your own power. And I, you know, Uncle Shane's sitting here, and there's someone who helped me arrive at that place of, of, you know, knowing our power and I think when we talk about solidarity through sovereignty or well, when we remember who we are and where we come from and work from that basis, um, uh, we are so more powerful and so more effective. And, and not not just in our time but for those that follow for generations to come um, because that's our responsibility in this time is for those that follow. Hi,
5: uh, thank you for coming here and. Uh, thank you for let, uh, letting us ask
6: questions.
0: Uh, you know, the system, the white man system, call it what you will, uh, in response to this oppression, comes
3: up with offers. An example would be, here in Australia, you've got the, the voice, and there could be a parallel,
0: or not, in uh, with, the, uh, with the offer made to the Palestinians. How do you, Ramsey,
3: and how do you, Amy, and the other speaker see these offers, are they enough? Are they uh, a pathway to something better? Uh, How do you evaluate them? That's my question, thanks. Uh, My answer is going to be very quick, so you guys can elaborate. We've never been offered anything, so I'm not really sure. I mean, if, if, if the references to Osu and all of that, not only we were not really offered anything, we lost a lot more since, you know, what was promoted in the media as some kind of an offer. Um, if You guys remember when uh, the Camp David talks were taking place, and Yasser Arafat, Ahud, uh, Ahud Barak, and Bill Clinton, you know, were negotiating, you know, some sort of a settlement. And then, and then the media kept saying that Yasser Arafat rejected a generous offer. A generous offer, it's like, and that was like, this the buzzword, the generous offer. People are like, you Palestinians are so ungrateful. And, and at the end of the day, there was actually no offer, generous or otherwise, and the whole thing was a media ploy. But it registered with millions of people that Palestinians were the ones who are responsible for the, you know, the uh, end of the peace process because they rejected. So if, if, uh, if the term offer is ever involved in the Palestinian discourse, it's always a media ploy. It's a lie. It's deception. Never. No offers have been been made, and, and honestly I don't think Palestinian freedom will ever be exacted through offers anyway. Um, I think it is just a process, an organic process of the people's resistance themselves, and, and and eventually we will arrive at that moment when we feel that whatever situation we have created through our resistance is going to guarantee the you know what we perceive to be the, the, the minimal uh, amount of rights that we are fighting for, and only then we can start engaging. With with that new reality. I mean, yeah.
4: Um, there's always the voice question. Um, you know, I think about the voice and also treaty here in the state of Queensland. I suppose a treaty. Um, while, you know, bringing in new laws to lock up black kids and target black kids specifically. You know, we're told treaties about renegotiating the relationship between the state government and black fellows, yet we've seen it be it's reinforced in real time right now. So it's not an offer. Um, it's, 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 it, it feels like these processes are being used in a way that we forget who we are, where we come from, whose land we're on. Um, to make settlers feel more comfortable about occupying stolen land and giving nothing while making us feel like ungrateful natives. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fact that we're being offered a supposed voice of which we don't get to decide whether we have it or not, and there's no actual um, sense that it comes with any actual power. I mean, it has a whole uh, native title vibe about it. Um, and so and this is, I guess, the violence of this place is the way in which it's it disguised. That the state can present itself as somehow a solution to the problem it's it, it represents, and that's where as black fellows, we have to know the truth and remember who we are, where we come from, whose land it is, and who should decide, and in what terms, um, and not 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 buy into the idea that that's some offer or a gift because it isn't.
2: Um. Um, and I just added what Chelsea just said: it's being framed as this once-in-a-lifetime chance. <laughs> Um, which is crazy because when this whole debate began it was about how we protect mob from racial discrimination because currently we have a racist constitution and it was watered down to such an extent that it became something that could pass at a referendum that the Australian people would be proud of. And so it's always been something that's been sold to the rest of Australia at the expense of black Australia who at the heart want to talk about these issues that are currently happening in our communities the fact we do not have any protection against racial violence, gendered sexist violence and we're seeing it right now and so you know you see even Anastasia Palaszczuk putting up a video about International Women's Day and maintaining the rage while at the same time she's locking up black kids at the same time we have Aboriginal women who have still disappeared in this state with a coroner's court and you know laying the groundwork for impunity. Um, It's just it doesn't really give us any protection you know what i mean it's just being watered down so that white australia can have its feel-good moment um and it will be really scary as we go into a referendum and we see the inevitable racist dialogue that is going to be drummed up in a referendum um so it's hard to see how it is an offering as you say or it is a gift um
4: yeah. and i mean yeah, we have race discrimination legislation, but it gets suspended at any given time. And, and even when blackfellas use uh, that, the state will still come for you for costs when you lodge those claims.
6: Uh, my question is directed mainly to you, Ramsey. Uh, today's Haaretz had a, an incredibly interesting article about um, Squadron 9, uh, 69 of the Israeli Air Force uh, threatening to go on strike unless the regime. Um, took the heat of the Supreme Court of Israel um, and that um, rebellion seems to have a
0: potential to
6: spread so I'd like to know how Palestinians who are currently still fighting their frontier wars how could they best exploit what's
3: happening in Israel uh, it's your lucky day because today I was actually doing research and writing about this particular subject but <laughs> 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 you know, it's very funny <laughs> so, um, Mark Ruffalo, a really famous Hollywood celebrity, tweeted yesterday. Did I say it correctly? Mark Ruffalo, right? Yeah. Um, the Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, tweeted. I think he today or yesterday, calling for sanctions against the current Israeli government. I thought that was very interesting. Now, I know Mark Ruffalo. And I know that he is a very smart person. BDS stands for Boycott, Divestments, and Sanctions. We have been talking about boycott and we've achieved divestments, but we haven't yet achieved sanctions because sanctions are state centered, right? So he saw that in that an opportunity. It's the Israelis, after all, who are delegitimizing their own government. They are saying it's a fascist government. So he was strategic. By saying let's sanction this government, not all of Israel all the time. This particular government, he threw the S word over there, right? Sanctions the same way that Jimmy Carter threw the um, the apartheid word uh, uh, war over there as well when he wrote his book Israel, uh, no Palestine, peace not apartheid. And a lot of people called him anti-Semitic at the time, but eventually everybody caught up with him, and now. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, many other human rights organizations, including Israel's leading human rights organization, B'Tselem, is calling what's happening apartheid. So that's where the opportunities come in. We can exploit these margins because now there is a lot of anger against Netanyahu and we could kind of push ourselves in there and, and try to expose the Israeli government for our own reasons, but, It doesn't mean that what is happening in Israel is in any way related to what is happening in Palestine. The fact is, the leaders of this movement are the former ministers of Naftali Bennett's government, which in 2022, according to the United Nations Office in Palestine, has killed more Palestinians within one year than any other government since 2005. And that includes Netanyahu's own government. So when Benny Gantz leads this anti-fascist revolution, and the man had himself killed so many Palestinians, we know that this is not our revolution, right? This reminds me of so many scenarios that transpire in in the United States in particular. For example, if you remember the the Wall Street uh, uh, movement, the 99 percenters a few years ago, And then you have the the Black Lives Matter movement. These are completely two different movements. Upper middle class white kids, you know, demanding jobs, greater equality within their own class space, as opposed to people who are fighting for mere survival, right? So, So there are no overlaps in actuality. Maybe Israelis one day they will develop enough class consciousness and realize that... Maybe their faith is connecting to that of the Palestinians. I'm still hoping that maybe that is going to happen. I mean, after all, 60% of all Israeli Jews are Arabs. They are Arabs. They are Sephardim. They are, they are, we call them Spanish, or they call them Arab Jews. They don't like the term Arab Jews, but the majority are actually Arabs. So there's always this part of me that says, well, maybe one day that is going to happen, but it's not happening now. One final point I would like to add to this is let's imagine that these protesters um, succeed in restoring the status quo in Israel, where the Supreme Court is independent from governments and and intervention and that sort of thing. But what is the status quo that existed prior to the decisions made by Netanyahu? After all, it was the Supreme Court that sanctioned all the demolitions in Palestine, all the theft of Palestinian lands. They are the ones who approve the nation state law that says only Jews have rights in Palestine and nobody else has any rights. So their status quo is still our death anyway, you see. So we have to be very careful about it, but that does not preclude the fact that we could use this as an opportunity to expose the fraudulent democracy that exists in Israel and has always existed in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I communicate this clearly, but going back to the notion of engaged intellectual
1: and solidarity, um, on grounds like Mianjin here, how could we manifest these notions whilst also maintaining enough credibility to, to, to maintain adequate living
6: status? I hope, I hope this makes sense. the same exact question or do you want me to rephrase it? What do you mean by
4: credibility?
1: Not credibility, maybe an adequate living status. To give some context, I'm a Palestinian here studying in Australia, and I I know that I need to maintain diplomatic colors, so it it may seem unclear to me how I can do that. Tomorrow you need that one. I don't know if that's allowed, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, this is obviously a big struggle for, uh, many Palestinians, if I've understood your question correctly, um, in different circumstances, in different ways, like Palestinians like yourself coming here, um, there is the, you know, there's always the threat if you're really openly engaged in, um, resistance, that kind of thing, um, probably, honestly, particularly in indigenous struggles, the way that the, you know, the Australian government sees that as, um, you know, such a threat, uh... Um, to their state sovereignty, um, there's, always the, there's always the risk of, um, you know, being kicked out of the country, basically. And for, for someone like me, myself, it's almost it's like the same thing, but the inverse. Um, there's a risk of not being let back into Palestine um, by the, you know, Israelis obviously control the borders, so um, not being let back in there. Um, And this is one of the the really kind of insidious ways that, um, uh, like, our Palestinian resistance is quelled, right? Um, And, like, I've felt it, um, you know, for myself as well. And, like, it works through things like anxiety, like paranoia about surveillance and that kind of thing. Um, And, um, yeah, I think for me personally anyway, uh, I got to the point where I just had to let go of the... um, of the the kind of uh, hope of returning um, again to Palestine, basically, um, in order to fight for Palestine. Um, so, and but it's always a personal choice as well, um, and it's a different circumstance. I don't know your exact circumstance, but it's obviously a, a very different one. Um, so, I think it's it's yeah, it's a struggle that we all individually face, um, and uh, we have to work out the ethics of that um, in conversation with each other. Um, yeah.
3: Um, I have a question for Anzi. Um, you know the status of Jerusalem in that the, the Palestinian, Palestinians have no citizenship there but they have a residency status.
0: Do you think this current Israeli government will impose an annexation over the whole of um, um, Palestine and create a situation similar to Jerusalem in giving the, or not giving the Palestinians, just
3: not, not allowing them citizenship and imposing um, a residency scenario similar to Jerusalem. Right. So, just a little bit of context to that question. is a very good question, just a little bit of, of background. So, so, Palestinians are kind of all living under various types of, of, of rules and divisions and lines. Uh, you have the besieged Gaza Strip. Uh, the Israelis say that we have disengaged from here. The international community says, no; it's still an occupied territories. Uh, Then you have the West Bank, divided to three areas, A, B, and C. And I don't, if you are getting confused, and you will get confused, that's the whole point. It's to create this confusion that, um, you know, the, the West Bank is a separate discussion, Area C is a separate discussion from Gaza, East Jerusalem is something different, and so forth. It's just the same military occupation, the same apartheid, the same racism, the same... Uh, 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 you know, mechanisms of control and and, and dominance but the Israelis kind of break it down in such a way because they want to divide the Palestinians because some Palestinians for a while thought that they are a little bit luckier than other Palestinians, so if you are a Palestinian uh, who is a native still living in Palestine today is Israel, you have a citizenship, you don't have equal rights you don't have equal rights you are still a, a second, third or fourth status citizen but you still have a passport that gives you a little bit more freedom than a Palestinian living in the West Bank. But Palestinians in the West Bank also have Jordanian passports that makes them feel a little bit luckier than those like the unfortunate some like us in Gaza. We have nothing. I remember when I left Gaza for the first time, I had what they call the laissez like an Israeli travel document just made for people in Gaza. And it says nationality and defined. So when I went to the first um, um, like border crossing past Palestine, the officer is looking at that and he says, "Who are you?" I said, "I'm a Palestinian. He says, "I don't care, but your passport doesn't say anything. It has no nationality. It's meaningless, right? So all of these kind of you know Israeli mechanisms have been aimed at, Dividing Palestinians, administering them in different ways, but ultimately the ultimate objective Take more land, build more settlements, empty the land from its people as much as possible But then something happened and it culminated to the May 2021 revolt in Palestine A revolt that in my opinion is still ongoing and manifesting itself uh, Every day in in various Palestinian polities And I think that's the moment the Israelis have realized that their plan has failed. The Palestinians, the so-called Israeli Arabs, these are the Palestinians who are living in the so-called Israel proper. This is Palestinian land that was colonized in 1947-48. Haven't forgotten or abandoned their identity. Uh, Palestinians in Gaza who were supposed to be isolated from the West Bank still stood in the same of. You remember, you guys, I mean, the whole thing started with the Sheikh Jarrah, the house demolitions in East Jerusalem, the resistance in Gaza fired at Israelis in retaliation, Palestinians in Haifa and Yaffa and Nazareth rose in rebellion against the Israelis, and suddenly Israel is in a state of civil war, the army is in the streets, and there was a complete panic. The Israeli media described this as, this is 1948 all over again. Like, everything that we have done to break them, everything we have done to divide them, at least at least we were able to attack one area at a time without the others retaliating. Now Palestinians are developing this new political discourse that is a lot factional than it's ever been. New groups that are not affiliated with any other existing political groups. Young people who are very smart, very connected, um, and developing this whole, you know, slogans and ideas that, that sees us all as one and the same. And that's where the, the risk of Israelis beginning to take action against, you know, to kind of use that passport as a leverage, to use that residency as a leverage. Now they are passing a law that passed its first reading in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, that basically says that any Palestinian uh, that, that, that carries out a terrorist attack uh, but it's written in the weirdest possible way not any Palestinian who carries out a terrorist attack but someone who, ha- who tries to harm the interests of the Jewish people whatever that means is to be executed so they are bringing back the executions that they have stopped 60, 70 years ago Israel is in a state of panic Israel is in a state of panic and the real panic here is that Palestinians in terms of numbers they are now equaling the Israeli Jews uh, in terms of political identity they are becoming again unified in, in terms of of, of uh, political discourse they have completely abandoned the entire Oslo framework nobody is talking about that and even in terms of one state versus two states majority of Palestinians in the West Bank for the first time in history are now demanding equal rights in one state. And that's where the panic in Israel is happening. Uh, And and this is why the rush to change the the, the nature of the Supreme Court and alter the judicial system, they are trying to do everything in their power to stop that collapse. And I think there's a lot of hope in all of this. I know sometimes when you, and we're talking about hope, you go to the news and you realize another number of Palestinians were killed. And it's like, where's this hope coming from? But if you actually look at it from from a, a, a kind of a wider perspective, you would see that Israeli political establishment is collapsing at the seam, and it's the Palestinians, on the other hand, that are rebuilding their their national unity and their political discourse once more.
5: Um, this is a general
3: question for everyone on the panel. I'm curious to know, when it comes to these movements, what role do white allies play?
4: I get slack like, for this question because I don't really care anymore, to be honest. Um, we've been trained t- to, you know, um, be of service to white fellows, even in our own struggle. Um, and so I found a freedom in not investing in that and really about how we build our own black collectives, where we find them, um, because that's where the power lies. It's not with white people. I mean... I know they like to think that, um, and we've bought into that, but we have, yeah, I, I'm just not exhausting my labour anymore on teaching white people how to be better settlers. Um, if there was a manual, it would have been written by now, I would have read it and followed it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, yeah.
3: No comments from Amy as well.
4: <laughs> so, um,
3: this is really interesting, because, because for us Palestinians, we do need, all kind of alliances and I wouldn't put it that way. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't even use the term white allies. I mean you know the term white people is, is relatively from a historical point of view is a new term like mid mid 17th century and, and and the term was created prior to that people were Germans and uh, French and Polish and Russian they were not white. white was was a concept that was created to de-alienate power relations, especially during the slavery of black people in the United States. In order for us to keep the slaves in their place, we needed to create a power paradigm in which there are people who are doing the domination and another group that is being dominated. Therefore, the the white people rose out of the, the, the misery of black people. And if if you ask me, what do you expect from these white people? Well, I just told you, it's about our relations, it's about dominance. What do I need from someone who defines his very existence based on dominating me? I have nothing to do with that person. So I would widen that definition, and I say people from all over the world. First of all... Indigenous peoples, uh, people who went through their process of national liberation, anti-colonial movements all over the world. These are the first line of alliances, because number one, they completely relate to what you have been through, and they know that by our freedom. I mean, when Nelson Mandela said um, the freedom of uh, our freedom is incomplete without the the freedom of Palestinians, he was not writing poetry. He understood. He understood that freedom cannot be sectionalized. And it's either we are all free at the same time or we are no, no one of us is free. And that's true. So that's our first line of defense. But but we also we, we want to delegitimize Israel internationally. I am keen on delegitimizing Israel in France and Spain and Canada as well. Because that's where Israel gets its power, its money. Uh, when, when Netanyahu says things like, Uh, They are trying to delegitimize the state of Israel in reference to the BDS movement. He's right. For once in his life, he's actually telling the truth, (laughs) right? We are trying to, but we're not trying to delegitimize Israel as the state of the Jewish people. We are trying to delegitimize Israel as an apartheid racist regime. And that delegitimization cannot happen without the solidarity of everyone, everywhere, right? And that's why we have to work with everyone but with the understanding that solidarity does not mean replacement. Um, These conferences that have always been held in the name of Palestine and Europe, and sometimes you don't find a single Palestinian on the panel. You know, we can't go through that again. That's not solidarity. That's another way of manufacturing dominance but in a different mechanism. It's about control and we can't allow that to happen. So, solidarity means you stand by my side. Give me the platform. Give me the space. And more importantly, please do not teach me how to resist. Please. If it's. You know, who was that uh, Rafif, um, the Palestinian poet Rafif um, Ziada, uh, who wrote, We teach life, sir? We teach resistance. We've been doing this for a century. We know how to resist. In 1936, Palestinians carried out a general strike that extended for six months. And that led to a rebellion that lasted for three years. Imagine the political consciousness of a group of people who were called fallahim, peasants. They didn't know how to read or write, but they had enough political consciousness that they would they would persist despite... of. British violence and Zionist violence, and they, they would carry on with that kind of mobilization at a mass scale. We don't need anybody to come and say, don't use violence, do this, why Hamas? No, 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 this is not your business. That's, that's our own fight. We are going to fight for that, and we will win. But your responsibility is to look at the action of your own governments, Right? The taxes that are collected on your behalf, and a portion of these taxes pays for the weapons and the guns and the bullets that kill our children. That's your responsibility, and if if, if you being a true ally, you will work very actively to reverse this, this devastating mechanism that keeps feeding Israel with all these weapons and with all this money. We need that kind of solidarity because that's meaningful solidarity but not a solidarity in position, a power relations and dominance once more.
1: All right, unless you have another question lined up, Medina. Um, yeah, okay, all right, we'll make this the final question then. Um, and then we'll uh, get to dinner because I know everyone's hungry. Thanks for the panel.
5: Um, my question is uh, directly to Ramsey. I, I agree with you that Israel's panicking. It is pretty obvious. Um, I don't think the Israeli project um, is viable any way you look at it. I fully agree, so there's hope. However, on the other hand, you have the, one, probably the most extreme Israeli government since the establishment of the state. Uh, you have settlers going wild. Um, in my mind, it's only what took you so long. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have the, the full support of everybody in the world. Um, you, the, the smallest weapon any settler carries is probably a an Uzi. Um, anything below that, you know, it's just not worth it. Um, what... How do you see uh, that evolving with the settlers going wild? uh, And they will go wild and wilder, um, especially also in light of the last uh, Aqaba meeting, where there were direct instructions to Abbas and his crew, and even an American plan of establishing Palestinian special forces with the sole purpose of crushing the resistance, which is part of the hope you talked about, of groups that are not affiliated with any actors on the ground, especially
3: around Jericho
5: Madness and Jaleed.
3: Thank you. There has been an understanding that Israel had with its European and Western allies and benefactors, especially Washington. It's a charade. Everybody knew from the very beginning that Israel wasn't really a true democracy. You can't come and say, I'm a democratic country for white people only, but not black people. They are not a democracy. You can't say, I'm a democratic country for Jews, and all non-Jews are, you know, to be excluded from from this structure. It doesn't work that way. The Americans knew it. Everybody knew it. Um, But they just needed one thing from Israel and one thing only. Keep the Sharad going for as long as possible keep claiming to be the great, the only democracy in the Middle East and, 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 and a beacon for human civilization you are the people who made the desert bloom and all that nonsense but at the same time you just carry on with your colonization project destroying trees, killing people, doing all of this and now Israel has violated that unwritten agreement because now Israel is putting its European allies in a very very difficult position when you have someone like Smotrich, the, the new finance minister, declare in a, in a in a in a public space that I am a fascist homophobe, what did you need for your allies? What what is the give them some material for their propaganda? they don't, they are running out. They're running out. Oh really? And, and yet, more and more people are going to become aware that, you know, if you found some sort of a moral acrobatic way of, you know, supporting Israel no matter what, I think for a large section of the human population, I think this is becoming more and more difficult. If you support fascism, then support Israel, because they are fascists and they admit that they are fascists. Now, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And it's just the nature of things. The Israelis are just not going to give up and just say, okay, you know what, we are are ready to strike a deal or make an offer, as the gentleman over there uh, suggested earlier. It's not going to happen. They are going to fight until the bitter end. But I think as they carry on with this fight, more and more voices around the world will continue to rise in solidarity with Palestine. And here's one last thing. Two last things, that's a lie. Two last things. <laughs> Number one, uh, I, I did an interview with Professor Richard Falk recently. Um, and I asked him, "Do you where, where does your hope come from for Palestine? He said, listen, I have been doing this for a long time and I've spent many years at the United Nations. And from my reading of history, he's a great historian, great international law expert. And he said, from my experience in both history and law, I can tell you this. There are two kinds of wars that are fought in this kind of context, like the Palestinian context. The actual war on the ground, weapons, guns, uh, the, uh, F-35s, and that sort of thing, and the legitimacy war. And he said Palestinians may be losing the war, the actual war, because they have no army, and they are being fed with billions of dollars of American and Western weapons every year, but the Palestinians are winning the legitimacy war. And he said, never in history, in the history of national liberation movements, did anyone win, uh, 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 win the legitimacy war, yet lost the war at the very end. So Palestinians are set on a course of victory. It's only the matter of time. And here's the second thing. You must have heard a few weeks ago when the Israelis joined the African Union Summit. They arrived as observers, and they kind of are being ushered into their seats. What they didn't realize is that the the, the, the mood in Africa has changed. There's a new awakening in Africa. France is being kicked out from Mali, Burkina Faso, the, the Central African Republic, and so forth. And there's new thinking that maybe Africa needs to use this massive geopolitical war that's happening in 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 europe to start building up its own independence and credibility and when that happens you know good things are going to happen to all of africa's allies the outcome was security officers came ushered the israelis out you're out of here and that wasn't an omission or a mistake they issued a statement uh south africa just passed uh, voted in the parliament, Israel has no place in Africa. And that is the legitimacy war. And we are winning that legitimacy war squarely, so the Israeli panic cannot possibly, if it's anything, is going to actually advance our, our, our moral victory. And with time, I think they are going to realize that nothing they could possibly do, no amount of firepower can possibly reverse this trajectory.
1: Uh, So the next ICRR event um, which is on Indigenous Sovereignty and Climate Justice uh, will be on the 25th of March uh, at Southside House. Um, So keep an eye out for for that event, Um, it will be great to see everyone there as well. Um, And then uh, we have a couple of, I'm going to pass the mic over to um, First of all, to, uh, to Sam. Um, hey, um, I'm Sam Warepa
6: Watson. I'm a Beragaba, uh socialist activist here in uh, so-called Brisbane. I just wanna pay my respects to uncle and uh, rightful owners of this land. Um, I'm a member of the Black People's Union, where a union that is uh, run by black people, for black people, um, you know, focusing on uh, revolution, not reform. I really liked when Amy said, uh, you know, why would we try and reform uh, a media that has failed us? And I think that that is the exact same um, way that we should view the government. This government has absolutely failed us. It has uh, made no action on deaths in custody, uh, no action on incarceration. It locks up children as young as 10. It has made no action on the climate crisis. In fact, It was a Labour government that extinguished the native title rights of Wangan and Jagalingu people and bankrupted Adrian Birgaba in court so that he could not fight them anymore. So, you know, I think, why, why would we want to reform that apparatus? And why would we want to trust any offer? I really like to talk about offers too. Why would we want to trust any offer that is given from that apparatus to give us liberation? to give us self-determination and sovereignty. It can't, because that apparatus exists and it was built and exists on stolen land and it exists to keep that land stolen and to exploit wealth and profit from the land and from the people who live here. So next Saturday, we're gonna be protesting the voice to parliament over in Queens Gardens at 11 Um, o'clock, and what we're gonna be saying is we demand better than a voice. You know, The Voice is a non-binding advisory council to Parliament. It is a body that is not democratically chosen by Aboriginal people. It is a body that is chosen by the government of the day. It's going to be created by a referendum which will permanently change the constitution so that every government gets to appoint that that that, that advisory body. Can you imagine the likes of Jacinta Price or Warren Mundine on that body? Can you imagine what they would say on behalf of Aboriginal people? So, I will not have the voice and I would hope that no one in this room would fall for such a folly. And I just want to say one more thing on uh, solidarity. I really, I really like the talk about solidarity in reply to the question from the back there. We want solidarity, not charity. We want people to realise that the same government that is screwing us over through The Voice to Parliament is screwing over every person in this room, all right? When you pay taxes and they go to prisons, when you pay taxes and they go to mines, when banks get bailouts from your money, when your boss makes profit on your labor, that is you being exploited. And I want you to realize that you have more in common with indigenous people than you do with the non-indigenous people in parliament and stand with us. If you wanna find out more about the Black People's Union, you can go to our website, It's blackpeoplesunion.org, and you can see a full list of our short-term and long-term demands there, and also details for the upcoming rally. Thank you.
7: Thanks, Jamal. Uh, I'm down there with the Justice for Palestine table. Uh, We've been working for more than a decade now in this city, and uh, May this year marks 75 years that we commemorate and acknowledge the Nakba that occurred in Palestine. So this is a big year for us and for the first time this year also uh, we're looking to have coordinated demonstrations across the country in each city so um, if you've sat here tonight I hope that you're asking yourself the question of what can you do and the answer to what you can do, you can get involved with us because we work regularly and consistently between each crisis to continue our struggle for boycott divestment and sanctions against apartheid Israel, one of your first steps I should think this May is to make this rally in this country the biggest commemoration and the biggest protest because as we know, everyone in this room knows, the Nakba continues. You just have to look at the, the news over the last 12 months, over the last two weeks, over the last week. They're continuing this process now for 75 years and join us on the 13th of May. We're doing it... Uh, We haven't got the venue yet, we're still working on that but it'll be hopefully King George Square. Join us for our commemoration and protest and let's make this the biggest knackbar we've had in the context, hopefully, of no intense violence. Because the last one we had was very large but it was associated with another wave of terrible violence. I think we have to work between the violence because the violence continues on a day-to-day basis. And so dig deep, put the date in your diary, turn up on Saturday the 13th and make it the biggest protest we've had in this city uh, for the Nakba for a long time, thanks.
0: Thanks very much to the organisers of this event. This is 4PR voice of the people, Ian Kerr. We'll go out with a poem by Rafip Zidia, accompanied by Phil Monsour.
8: Today, my body was a TV massacre. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre made to fit into sound bites and word limits. Today, my body was a TV'd massacre made to fit into sound bites and word limits filled enough with statistics to counter measured response. So I perfected my English and I learned all my UN resolutions. I perfected my English, and I learned all my UN resolutions. But still, he looked me straight in the eyes and asked me, Ms. don't you think that everything would be resolved if you Palestinians would just stop teaching so much hatred to your children? Pause. I look inside of me for strength to be patient. I look inside me for strength to be patient but patience is not at the tip of my tongue as the bombs drop over Gaza. Patience has just escaped me. Pause. Rafif, remember to smile. You're on camera. Everyone is watching. Remember to smile. Pause. We teach life, sir.